Lord, I thank you that as we walk with you, Lord, you will reveal to us your ways. You'll instruct us. You will counsel us. You will challenge us. You will warn us. And Lord, I pray tonight as we are listening to your words, Lord, I pray that you would speak into our innermost being, that you would instruct us, that you would help us awaken to maybe realities that we have not considered, Lord. And I ask tonight that you would move supernaturally in our lives, that good would come, that we could say at the end of this evening, it was good and and pleasant to be in your house, Father, because we had an opportunity to relate to you and to one another. But most of all, Lord, we, we really encountered your presence. And Lord, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And so I pray at the end of the evening that joy will be the end result. Lord, even though you may instruct or correct us along the way. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. All right. <clears throat> I am not going to continue my series for the next couple of weeks on Revelation. I will get back to it, uh, but I want to just... I've been studying the book of Hosea uh, as, a, as a course right now, and I'm actually studying it in the Hebrew language. And actually, this is a very challenging book because there's a number of problems uh, with the, the actual understanding of certain words in the book of Hosea. And so it creates a lot of difficulties for translators. But you don't have to worry about that. That's That's issues for these other individuals. But let me uh, just tell you, that's where I'm going to be speaking from. We're going to turn to Hosea chapter 14. We're going to look at the end of the book. I'll just give you a quick summary of what's going on. Hosea is actually speaking to the nation, especially the northern part, who are at this point in life totally unfaithful to God. And the tragedy is they think that they're serving God when in reality they're totally missing the mark. How many think that'd be kind of a tragic thing, that you sincerely think you're serving God And God is going, no, you're totally missing it. And I'm about ready to bring you into exile. I'm about ready to actually allow the consequences of your sin to have a full impact on you. How many think that would be kind of a sad story? And that's really it. But we we close the book with a word of hope and encouragement. So aren't you glad I picked chapter 14 to go there? Because I think my, my, my prayer is that we will experience hope tonight at the end of the message. That's the most important thing. A number of years ago, we had a tornado that struck central Alberta. Some of you might be aware of it. It happened. It went right across uh, from the west to the east, and it struck a place called Pine Lake. And some of you probably were affected by that. We had a RCMP officer who was the, was the leader of victim services at the time. His name was Wayne Young. And so when the tornado struck, it was really a bizarre night. Uh, I remember it. I got a phone call. Can pe- we opened the building. Some people stayed in the warehouse. And then the next day, Wayne phones me and says, Pastor, you think it's okay if the church became a center for victim services so that all the people who had lost a loved one, there was 19 uh, uh, people that passed away. There were many people that were injured and there was total devastation of all of their RVs and all the other things out there. It was a real mess. And he said, you know, we need to help these people process all the grief and the loss that they're experiencing. Would the church open its doors? I said, absolutely, Wayne. Yeah, bring them over. And so Patty and I, my wife, we came over to here, and, and so we were meeting with families and talking to them, and you could see that, you know, you know, they were really distressed and distraught, and obviously so. And then eventually Wayne approached us and said, would you like to go out and see the site? And I said, yeah, that would be interesting. So we drove out to Pine Lake, and we jumped into a little uh, golf cart, and we drove around the site. And I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen anything like it. It almost looked like a movie set. 
It looked like a World War II battle scene after the battle had been fought. I mean, there were huge RV trailers thrown into the lake as if they were like toothpicks. You know, trees literally were uprooted and sent like bow and arrow into things. I mean, I'd never seen such devastation in my life. It was absolutely brutal. And at the end of it, I realized, wow, some people's life now are totally defined by this experience. You know, I had a neighbor just like a half a street over whose husband was killed in that tornado. So obviously, her life now going forward is going to be forever different. And so we know that it's true in life that when catastrophes come or, or some great event that comes in our life, we're just cruising along and then all of a sudden there's a tragedy that strikes us. You know, we, I recently have done two big funerals and they were both tragic deaths. I mean, one was an entire family killed in a moment. Uh, four people were killed. And so the survivor, the mother uh, and the grandmother actually lost all of her living relatives in one car accident. And you could just imagine that that's going to define her life. Or the family that lost a young man who made a decision to end his life. How devastating that was to that family. And so we know that that's a defining moment in a person's life. You know, you just don't pick up and move on as if nothing happens. You know, these are defining moments. So I want to just ask us, when that happens, when our personal worlds come tumbling down, we literally feel like we can hardly go on with life. It almost seems like life has lost its luster. And we need, we need to know at those moments how to move forward from there. How do we pick up our lives? How do we go on after situations like that? Eugene Peterson wrote a number of year ago, year ago, years ago. He said, people generally respond in one of two ways to catastrophe. They either live in denial or they live in despair. It's just amazing. And, you know, denial refuses to acknowledge the problem. Those in denial try to shut their eyes and pretend that everything is okay. And people who are in denial take refuge in distraction, lies, and fantasies. In other words, they just can't cope with it. And they're, just, they're, they're living in another world. They're not dealing with the issues in their life. People in despair are paralyzed by the cat- catastrophe and accept it as the end of their world. And they're unwilling to do anything, including that, concluding that life, uh, for all of its intents and purposes, are over. And I've seen that. You know, someone who's been married, they maybe have lived for maybe 50, 60 years together, and one of the spouses passed away, and you can almost tell the other person doesn't want to go on living. And we, we read about it. Many times, people immediately afterwards pass away because they literally give up the will to live. And it's true. I've, I've watched it. I've been a witness to this. And yet, I'm going to make a declaration to you tonight that catastrophes and difficult situations do not have to define our lives. And we need to know that. And you say, well, how do I move forward then? How do I move forward when my life has been that deeply scarred or affected? And I I want to just say to us that God is at work um, in our catastrophe, and he's, he's there with us in it, and he's there with us through it, and he's there with us beyond it. And there's something that we can learn through those experiences. There's something that God wants to do inside of us that will help us move forward. And it will actually reshape us. I believe that we can become a better model of ourselves. That this, this experience can so def- change us. It can change us in a negative way, but it can also change us in a positive way. And it has a lot to do with the choices that we make during and after those experiences. Now, here in the book of Hosea, Hosea is communicating through a metaphor about the love of God. And he uses the marriage situation between the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer to describe what it's like when a spouse is unfaithful. You know, and basically, 
Marriage is actually a metaphor to describe our relationship with God. That's the level of, of intimacy God you know, desires to have with his people. God sees us as our, we're his bride. We're, we're the clo- that's the closest relationship, humanly speaking, right? Marriage is the closest relationship. And God wants to have that kind of nearness with us, his people. And so when we choose not to trust God, when we embrace other, you know, other things in our lives as a substitute for God, and we do that. That's what idolatry is, a substitute for God. Whatever we're putting our trust in other than God, that becomes an idol. And so that's a statement of unfaithfulness in, in our relationship to God. And that was what was going on with the people of Israel. And so we get to this chapter at the end. And so God now has just basically said, I'm giving you over to what you've wanted. You've literally rejected me for hundreds of years. You've pursued other lovers. You know, I'm, I'm turning you over to the end result of your activity. And that's a very sad condition to be in. So, but, and I'm not preaching this tonight, but if we went to chapter 6, or chapter 11, sorry, chapter 11, we'd find out that God was conflicted with that decision. And he has this, he, he almost ruminates, he's, he's kind of meditating out loud, and he said, you know what? As much as I need to do this to you, and as much as I'm going to allow this discipline to happen in your life, God says, I still can't totally give you up. You know, I still can't give you over like I did Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm not going to totally destroy you. I'm going to leave a remnant. I'm going to allow this situation to be transformed ultimately. There's going to be a remnant that survives. There'll be a people that do come back to the land. And so uh, when you and I mess up, what we need to know is that God does not give up on us. How many are thankful God never gives up on us? Wow, that's so encouraging. His love is steadfast, you know. And I'm studying this Hebrew word, and I've, I shared this before, this word has said. And that's the word for steadfast, loyal, faithful love. And that's, that's a word that you and I, you know, even scholars have actually written entire books on. I've actually read, you know, a book and a half on just this one word. Because they're still trying to figure out what does it totally mean. It's, it's such an amazing concept. The steadfastness of God's love towards us. It's amazing. It never changes. And I love what Jeremiah writes when he's writing um, in the book of Lamentations. You know, you read the lament of Jeremiah when Jerusalem later on is destroyed by the Babylonians. And he sees this destruction. And yet in the fourth chapter he says, But God's mercies are new every morning. Isn't that beautiful? And I want to just share a thought with all of us here tonight. Do you know that your attitude and the way you choose in life to live is going to define your life? It's not, I'm going to say it this way, the circumstances that happen to us, we cannot control. How many know that's probably true? I can't control what's going to happen in my life, but I can control how I respond to what's happening in my life. I can make a choice. And you know, sometimes we get up in the morning and we can start out by saying, good morning, Lord. Or we can say, good God, it's morning. You know, that's kind of an attitudinal thing. How many already catch on what I'm getting at? Some people wake up in the morning, they're already in a miserable frame of reference. They get up, they're grumpy, and you know that day just gets worse. How many have had that experience, you know, you just start out poorly and it just doesn't get any better? And then there's other times you get up, you say, man, I love this world, you know, I'm so excited, I'm so full of joy, I'm happy about this day, I'm looking forward to what God and I are going to do today. And it's amazing how that day shapes up. It's amazing how our attitude affects what's going to happen and how we perceive what happens during that day. We make a lot of choices and it's unbeknown to us. But I think a lot of people, what they do is they live a very passive life and they allow everything that's happening to them define how they're going to respond to life. Isn't that true? 
Come on, how many here, you honestly have to admit that what happens, generally speaking, in your life is that you're shaped and defined by what's happening to you. You're emotionally shaped and defined by what's happening to you. Okay, let's be honest. How many? That, that kind of affects you, big time. But how many here say, you know what? I'm going to make a choice tonight. See, see I'm, gonna, I'm trying to bring some stuff out to help us in our daily life. I'm going to make a choice how I'm going to live life. And I'm not going to let what's happening to me define my attitude and my behavior. I'm going to make healthy choices. And it's so powerful. That's what we need to understand. God obviously does that. So the right response in, in life's darkest moments is always to turn to God. Okay, that's, that's where we need to focus. And if we have forsaken him, it means turning our backs on our sinful ways. In other words, we're saying, okay, I've been doing the wrong thing, but I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to turn around and turn towards God. And that's exactly the beginning of the words that Hosea here gives in chapter 14. Because, um, and, and let me just say this, and I've already said this, but putting our trust in God rather than all the false substitutes we put in God's place, that's what idolatry is. But I want to make a qualifying statement so that you don't misunderstand something tonight. Not all difficulties or catastrophes that come into our personal lives are because, excuse me, as a result of what we've done. Okay? In other words, sometimes what's happening to us is a consequence of our bad decisions. Isn't that true? Sure it is. But then there's other times bad things happen to us and we haven't done anything to deserve it. It's not something we've done to cause it. You see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to say, be careful when you're evaluating what's happening in your life and you're going, okay, God, what did I do wrong? You know, and God goes, you didn't do anything wrong. That's what Job was upset about. Job was just moving along, doing everything that was right, and all of a sudden, catastrophe struck his life. And he's going, God, you're unfair. I'm doing the right stuff. Why is this bad stuff happening to me? You know, so you cannot just, you know, make the assumption in your mind that I must be doing something wrong if bad things are happening to me. But on the other hand, that can happen at times. I can do all kinds of wrong decisions, wrong choices, and I experience negative consequences. Okay, so there's times that we suffer because we're connected to our sinful world. I just say the fact that sin is in the world, we're going to be impacted by it. And that's what Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God says, I'm good to everybody. I'm good to the people that are doing crazy things, wrong things, sinful things, and I'm good to people who are doing the right stuff. So God says, I'm just loving. If I wasn't loving, this planet wouldn't survive. I'm what's keeping it going. And I believe that with all of my heart. So what can we learn then? Because Israel had turned her back on God. Judgment was now the natural consequence. Now as a nation, it's defeated in war, and they're brought into captivity, and they're off the land. And you know, you have to understand something. This is a huge crisis of identity. See, when we read the story, when Israel goes into captivity, you go, oh, too bad, you lost out. But I want you to understand something in their thinking, in their psychological mentality. They believed, and rightfully so, that they were God's chosen people. God says, I'm going to give you this land. The land was part of their inheritance, but the fact that they lost the land meant that they were losing their inheritance. And they were struggling with their identity. They were wondering, has God divorced us? Has God rejected us? You can appreciate why they were thinking this. Follow what I'm getting at? So this was actually a significant crisis. This was not just a, you know, a, a physical crisis. This was actually a spiritual and a psychological crisis in who they were and in their identity. So this is a very major thing that's going on here. And so now Hosea is speaking to this. So what can I learn from Hosea 14? 
Well, God's intentions are expressed toward us even in times of, of a national or personal disaster. And so I want to just look at a few things that we need to understand. First of all, we need to know that when these things are happening, it is a moment to pause and reflect. Okay? So I'm going to say this. If a crisis comes into our life, it's okay to ask the question, okay, am I having this experience because I've done something that warrants this experience? And if not, then I can dismiss that thought, okay? But at least I need to raise that as a question. And the reason I say that is because when you study Hosea, what you're going to find out is these people were so self-deceived, they just couldn't even see they had a problem. And I'm, I'm actually a little distressed myself about what's happening in North America I, and even in other parts of the world because we can think that we're totally right with God, we're doing all the right things, and in reality, we're living a life of self-deception. You know, And what I mean by this is a lot of us, and I'll frame it this way, then you'll get a, maybe a better understanding. I think a lot of Christians in the world think God is like themselves. Okay? What I mean by that is, God would never do that because I would never do that. In other words, God is like me. And what I'm saying to us is, no, God's not like us. See, what you are actually doing is making God in your image. You're actually self-worshipping. That's the ultimate form of idolatry. That's a scary thought, isn't it? So what I'm trying to get across to us tonight is, I think we need to figure out who God really is. We have to go back to the scriptures and say, God, I don't want to just know about you. I actually want to know you, and I want to know what you're really like. And I'm going to say some statements here that God is unlike us. And that once we get to understand who God is, then the goal is that you and I become conformed into his image rather than trying to conform God into our image. How many see there's a difference in those two things? Can you appreciate, there's a lot of people walking around going, God would never do that. No, what you mean is you'd never do that. That doesn't mean God wouldn't do that. I'm going to say this, God is a more profound lover than all of us in this room, number one. God is a greater forgiver than anybody in this room. And actually, God will deal with people more severely than anybody in this room. Those are all shocking statements. And it's the truth. How's that? And so I think sometimes we go, oh, yeah, God would never do that to people. Listen, I've read my Bible very carefully over a long period of time. I'm shocked sometimes at what God will do. He'll do some shocking things. It'll blow you away. I mean, Job was pretty upset with God. He never anticipated what God was going to do in his life. He was mad at God. He wanted to put God on trial. He wanted to put God on the witness seat, and he wanted God to answer some questions. He goes, what in the world are you doing, God? How many have read that book? Have you, you know, read that book. You'll see how angry Job gets towards God. He's going to put God on trial. And God says, listen, Job, I'm going to tell you something. I'll only answer your questions if you answer mine. And when God put Job on the witness seat, Job says, I'm a stupid man. I know nothing. I'm not going to answer one more thing. I don't even... He said, God, you're God. Who am I to question what you're doing? What I'm trying to say to us is God does, is not accountable to you and me. God does not have to answer to you and I for what he's doing. But you and I need to answer to God for what we're doing. Because he is the creator. We're the created. There's a big difference. How many get it? How many think that's a little different? So we have a lot of people that are very arrogant in our culture, think that, you know, God somehow owes us an explanation. God owes us nothing. He created us. We owe him everything. And if we're children of God and we've been, you know, redeemed by his great sacrifice, what we really need to owe God is our lives and our gratitude. And we need to have the right attitude. Okay. So God is looking for us to acknowledge where we are at and where we have failed. 
And when we're in a state of spiritual death, cut off from God, we struggle. It impacts every area of our lives. Matter of fact, when you study through Hosea, you'll find out that sin, human sin is what's causing the ecological problem. You know all these people who are environmentalists today? I'd say, you want to straighten out the environment? Get right with God. Because human sin is what's affecting our planet in a negative way. How's that? You go, how does that connect, Pastor? Well, let me give you an example. How many know that greed is a sin? And sometimes we exploit our planet because we're greedy. Right? And sometimes we exploit our planet because we're thoughtless. And we're selfish. Those are all sins, by the way. So I'm just saying to everybody, if you really are serious about being a a good environmentalist, get your life right with God. That'll really start it in the right direction. Not only that, it affects the economy. You know, when there's a disparity of of, uh, wealth between the people who have things and the people who have not things, listen, when we have a lot, we need to share with those that have less. How many know that 53% of our world live on $2 American or less per day? 53% of our world. And some of us in this room, you know, we make a lot more than $2 American a day. How many say that's true? I make more than $2 American a day. Anybody here in the room make more than $2 American a day? I'd venture to say everyone in the room gets more than $2 a day. You're already richer than 53% of the world. So if you want to talk about, you know, what's fair... Listen, this world and human beings, we're not that fair to each other. Isn't that true? Come on now. We just don't think about it. We're just busy thinking about our own little worlds. Well, God's concerned about the entire globe. He's concerned about all the people. And then we notice that our sin affects our relationships. And when we are sinning, we're not only affecting ourselves, we're affecting everybody around us. And I'm going to just say something. And the reason why there's a soaring divorce rate in our country is because we're sinners. And that we don't treat each other the way we ought to treat each other. How's that? No amens to that? Come on, somebody's not doing something right. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's a culprit. I'm just saying, yeah, we're all sinners. But some people are actually more selfish than other people. It causes a lot of havoc. As a matter of fact, you know, I think it's rare the person who actually, instead of blaming another or finding fault in another, actually looks at themselves and says, what can I do in my life to make my relationship better? Why don't we start there? You know, it's so easy to find fault in the other person. Isn't that true? Come on now. It's easier to see the problem in the other person. Jesus said that. He said, hey, if you're going to remove the speck in your brother's eye, better take the plank out of your own. How many think that's kind of a powerful parable? What he's saying is sometimes the thing that bugs you the most, you're the most guilty of. Shock of all shocks, right? This really irritates me. And what you're doing is... They're doing it in a small measure, and God's going, you've got more of that stuff inside of you than they do. And the reason it's bugging you, it's it's a mirror to show you what's going on in you. That's why it's annoying you so much. Shock of all shocks, isn't it? And so all I'm suggesting tonight is that we need to be a lot more ready to see our part in the problem and stop blaming everybody else. Isn't it amazing in our culture today, nobody wants to take responsibility for their behavior. How many have figured that out? And actually, this culture today has done an amazing job of diagnosing all the problems. And we've moved it all the way into a psychological or a medical model. And so we treat everything as if it's a sickness. How many know that's true? I have a problem with that. You say, what's your problem? Okay, I'm going to really step out on the limb now. I'm going to say some stuff that you're going to say, Pastor, you're in another planet. But in 1950, Carl Mettinger wrote a book. He was a psychiatric uh, psychiatrist. He wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? You can actually look it up. You can actually secure this book. And his whole premise in the book is simply this. 
that we have a culture today that no longer talks about sin. We've moved away from a theological model, and now we have, you know, we've, we kind of have a psychological or a medical model. So everything is diagnosed. And I know this for a fact, that every condition possible to a person living on this planet, they have a diagnosis for, and they'll treat you for it. Do you guys know that? They'll make sure you get a little red pill, a blue pill, an orange pill, or some kind of a pill to help modify your behavior. Anybody know that's true? That's the way it works. And I'm going to tell you something. I think we've made a major mistake. You say, why is that, Pastor? Because all you're doing is treating a symptom. You want to get down to the root problem? Here's what you need to hear. First of all, I would think it would be totally unjust of God if he he said to us, these are the things that are going to cause you, these choices, these activities, these behaviors are actually, when when you are trapped in these areas, they're going to lead you to a, a life apart from God for all of eternity. In other words, these are the things that are going to cause you to go into hell. He says things like, you know, let's say you're a drunkard. That's the term that's used in the New Testament. All drunkards will actually not go into the kingdom of heaven. So now I've got to ask the question, is alcoholism a disease or a sin? And in our culture, we've labeled it as a sickness. And if it's a sickness, you can't do anything about it. You need to be treated. But if it's a sin, you and I can take responsibility for our action, acknowledge before Almighty God, I have a drinking problem. I have a sin issue. Yes, it's now controlling my life. Yes, it's addictive in nature. Let me tell you something. Sin is very powerful, and it is addictive in nature, and it does control our lives. But unless we stop blaming other people and saying, the reason I'm an alcoholic is because I had these bad experiences in my life, my life and I justify my behavior, or worse yet, I act like I don't have this problem, which I, you know, I've been around people that say, I don't have a drinking problem. Really? Why are you drunk so often? You know, why are you trying to cope with all the problems in your life by abusing alcohol or drugs? I'm just asking the question. Why are you doing that? Why aren't you trusting God with your issues? Why aren't you confessing your need before Almighty God? Is God not powerful enough to deliver you from this problem? I have seen and witnessed with my own eyes and heard testimonies of people whom God has delivered from alcoholism. That's right. And as a matter of fact, when you and I put our trust in Christ, listen to what the scripture says. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So what I once was, I am no longer. Now, that doesn't mean that if I've had a problem with alcoholism, that I, then I go out and start drinking. Listen, if you struggle with a certain propensity towards sin, the best answer to that is abstinence. Stay away from it. Yes. You know? Or you're going to have to have God help you modify your behavior where, you know, sometimes we do something that's normal and natural, but we abuse it, and then it becomes a sin to us. And then we've got to pray, Holy Spirit, come and give me self-control. Amen? Can we not have self-control? Is not that one of the results of the Holy Spirit in our life? Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, or the result of the Spirit in our life is self-control? Come on now. You and I, we can actually do the right thing. Now, if we're not a Christian, I can appreciate you can't do that. I don't judge non-believers because they're sinning. I think that's normal behavior for non-believers. But if I confess Christ and I've received Christ and I have the Spirit of Christ within me, I can ask God to give me the power to say no to sin. And we need to know that. And so we don't have to live in defeat. We can actually walk in victory. Wow. Isn't that great? I love it. It's the Bible. And we're not preaching this stuff anymore. People are just walking around, you know, we're numb. 
got a whole bunch of numb people walking around going, there's no hope for me. I'm a victim. I said, listen, you can stop being a victim and be a victor by acknowledging I need your help, God, and I'm not going to blame anybody else for my problem. And then it says regarding relationships, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, the fact that that verse is there says that it may not always be possible. It takes two to make a marriage work. And I've been a pastor a long time now, and I know that that's true. And you know, sometimes, you know, people tell me, oh, I want it to work. And the other person tells me, oh, I want it to work. And at the end of the day, they're divorced. I go, someone's lying to me. I'm not a rocket scientist, but you know, if it's going to work, they both have to be honest about it. Hello? So you can lie to me all you want to, but the only person you're lying to is who? Yourself. That's the only person. You're not getting away with it. The fruit is in the pudding. It's the way it works. Well... Listen to how verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1 starts. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Is that straightforward? I think that's pretty direct. How many say Hosea was pretty direct? Do you know Hosea was so direct that the people didn't like him? They said, You know what? You're a madman. You're insane. You know? If you tell people the truth today, people will think you're out of touch with reality. Isn't that true? But you know what I've noticed about people in our culture? The people who are the scoffers. By the way, do you know what a scoffer is? That's someone who wants you to do the wrong thing. They're not just satisfied with putting you down. They want you to actually succumb to their, their ideas, their ideology. So they're not happy with anything less than that. I notice we have a lot of scoffers in our culture today speaking right out, promoting their agenda, and think nothing of it. But if you and I stand up and say something, you know what? They consider us out of touch with reality. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be politically correct. I believe it's a tragic mistake on the part of the church to keep its mouth shut. You and I need to speak the truth in love. But we need to speak up and speak the truth because we're the ones that are actually curtailing the evil in this culture. And if you and I remain silent, evil wins. And evil seems to be prevailing in our culture. So I say, where is the church? Well, we're all quiet, Pastor. We don't want to offend anybody. Do you know Jesus offended people? I hate to tell you this, but he did. As a matter of fact, he went after things that were wrong in his culture. He literally confronted the issue of his day. Not every single issue, but key issues. He confronted them, and it got him killed. You're going, that's the problem, Pastor. I don't want to be killed. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be persecuted. Hey, if we're not being persecuted, how godly are we? It says all that live godly lives in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So, first of all, we need to confess we need help. And this confession has to be more than a superficial statement or an insincere statement. Hosea 14.2 says, take words with you and return to the Lord. In other words, get back to God. Say to him, forgive us our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Now, this is not just a verbal confession. It's also an action. We have to return to God. It speaks of our submission to God in his ways. It speaks of a renewed obedience to God's ways. So when people say, well, I'm really sorry for doing something, and then they keep doing it, what, what are the first thing you think of in your mind? Somebody says they're sorry for doing something, they just keep doing it. You go, you're not sorry. Right? Come on now. Don't tell me you love me and then you do stupid things against me. That's nonsense. You're just saying words. If you really are sorry, you will stop doing it. Hello? 
It's the truth. You guys are getting quiet here. Am I, am I saying things that are a little bit intense or what? I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not going to do you a favor by telling you what's not true. You see, what's happening in our culture today, we're believing lies and therefore we're in bondage. It's the truth that sets us free. Uh, one of our problems as society is that we minimize sin. Now, I'm not talking about the sins of others. I'm talking about our own sin. Isn't that true? Do we grieve over the fact that we are violating our Savior's love? Lord, man, you've loved me so much and I treat you like this. Man, that bothers me. I should be grieving over that. That we've been unfaithful to the lover of our soul. God, I've been cheating on you. I've been trusting in myself. I've been trusting in other people. I'm trusting my job. I'm trusting my money rather than trust you. Come on now. That's unfaithfulness, guys. Right? Isn't that true? Of course it is. You know, Listen to what Paul, you know, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, listen to their attitude about sin. He said, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. In other words, to do the right thing. Do we literally grieve over sin? We should. Godly sorrow will bring about a transformation. And then there's a worldly sorrow that we're just sorry that we got caught. We're just sorry that we're experiencing bad consequences, right? John says this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. But you know, one of the issues I've confronted with over the year, over the years, is that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Anybody in this room, you have a hard time forgiving yourself? Okay. Now, maybe not always. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you've done something so stupid and sinful that you go, how in the world did I ever do that? Anybody have that problem? Come on, let's be honest. Come on. Honesty is good for the soul. Oh, yeah, two hands up. That's great. Let me just tell you what the problem is. And then, you know, then you have a hard time forgiving yourself. Anybody have that problem? Then you have a hard time going, man, I'm so embarrassed, right? You know what? You know what's holding us back? You're going to hate to hear this. I'll I'll just tell you what from my, my experience. It's pride. See, I can hardly believe I sinned at this level. I'm so full of myself. I think I couldn't do this. I want to just shatter something in this room. All of us in this room are sinners. Yes, we're experiencing God's grace if we're Christians. But let me say this. You and I can sin at a deeper level than we've ever sinned before in our lives. Given the right opportunity, we can sin at a terrible level. In other words, we have never understood the nature and the depravity of sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say we were in the middle of a, a civil war right now. And we, were, we had lost our homes and we didn't have enough food. Now we've got to share stuff with other people. But you're starving to death, and so is somebody else. How many say about that point, it gets pretty tough to make decisions? Now we start to see the true nature come out. See, you know, it's really easy when we're living in an affluent culture and we have a lot to say, oh, you know, we're good people, we can hand out things. But we're really giving out of our surplus. We're not giving out of our need. You know, how many of us have really sacrificed See, that's what I'm getting at. Or, you know, really had to give up, you know, really laying down your life for someone else. It's really difficult when you're in an affluent culture to be able to do that. We don't normally do that stuff. So let me go back and say this. When God, in this text says, if I confess my sins, what will God do? What will God do? He will forgive us. You know, so let me ask a question. Every sin that I've confessed before God, what has God done for me? He's forgiven me. So if I am not forgiving myself, I'm acting in a role that's greater than God. Isn't that true? Are we greater than God? If God can forgive us, 
then ought we not to forgive ourselves? Because if you don't forgive yourself, what you're really doing is, is your pride is in the way. And you're saying, I've got to punish myself. No, listen, God took the punishment. We need to accept that forgiveness. Do you know it's humbling to accept the fact that you and I are stinkers and rotters that God needs to forgive? Isn't that the truth? Isn't it hard to admit we're sinners? Yeah, it is. It's hard to admit we're not as great as we think we are. It's humbling. And the Bible says we need to humble ourselves under the hand of Almighty God. You know, we need to humble ourselves. And then God's grace comes into our lives. God will not give grace to the proud. He'll only give grace to the humble. It takes humility to admit, hey, I'm wrong. It's hard to do. Do you know what's interesting? The saints of old understood the need for constant confession and the acknowledgement of God. Do you know um, Thomas Kramer in the book of Common Prayer? This is an Anglican Common Prayer book. Listen, listen what he says. He says, to those who love God, uh, okay, to those who love God, the scripture moves us in various places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness and that we should not deny or hide them before the face of Almighty God or Heavenly Father, but confess them with a humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart to the end that we might obtain forgiveness of God by his infinite, infinite goodness and mercy. And then he goes on to say, And although we ought at all times to humbly acknowledge our sin before God, yet ought we most chiefly to do so when we assemble and meet together. You know, a lot of us think, well, I just, you know, do my business with God. It's a personal thing. I just confess my sins privately. What he's challenging the church to do is, you know, we ought to stand up once in a while and say, God, we as sinners, we humble ourselves. We have sinned against you. And so in the Anglican confession, this is what they do. This is their prayer. Listen to what, he, what they say. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Can anybody say amen to that? Come on now. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which ought to have been done. That's called the sin of what? Omission. See, a lot of us feel like, you know, I didn't do anything bad this week. Did you do anything right this week? That's another part of it, right? Listen to what the scripture says. To him to know to do good and you don't do it, that's a sin. So you and I have a responsibility this week to do good. How's that? Lord, what good should I be doing this week? And if I don't do it, when you show it to me and I don't do it, I'm sinning against God. I'm not being used of God. I'm not doing God's will. Then he goes on, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there's no health in us. That's pretty strong language. To those who love God. Well, that's, the, that's the part I was reading. I mixed up these slides and then went backwards. Okay. So. Then he says, But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Woo. Spare us, O God, which confess their faults. Restore us that are repentant according to your promises declared to mankind, mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O, o, o most merciful Father, for Christ's sake that we may from this point live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Is that a powerful prayer? I mean, could you imagine every week we get up and say, okay, Lord, we ask you to forgive us for the things we should have done this week that we didn't do, and forgive us for the things we shouldn't have done that we did. And we say, Lord, we acknowledge that somehow this week we messed up, and sometimes we didn't even know we were messing up because we're just ignorant of it. You know, because, you know, the Bible actually talks about unintentional sin. And you know what I find? I sin unintentionally. You know, I hurt people. How many here, have you ever hurt somebody and you didn't even know you did it? Raise your hand. 
And then later on they come to you and say, you know, that was offensive to me. That hurt me. That happened to me this week. One of our staff came up to me and said, Pastor, when you said this, it hurt me. Forgive me. I didn't intend to do that. Unintentional sin. Man, I'm always in trouble. I'm a sinner. I need God's grace every single day. You know what I mean? Let me, let me, uh, let me close with a story. I could just go on and on, but I'm going to close uh, with a, a story here. Uh, if we don't address sin in our lives, it destroys our character. And Don, Donald Miller tells a story how subtle sin is and how when sin comes into our lives, it literally starts diminishing us. He tells the story that he shared, you know, he, he lived with his friend and mentor, John McMurray. And they had kind of a rule in their, in their relationship and in their home to tell the truth. And so uh, John, he says, and I were sitting in the family room one night and he says, hey, what's the new cell phone? Oh, he says, great, I got it for free. Oh, how did that happen? He said, well, I, my other one broke and I took it in to see if they would replace it. And they had this new computer system at the store. And so they didn't have any records of when I had purchased the phone. And you know, there's kind of a one-year warranty on it. And so the guy asked me flat out, he said, uh, now, I don't have you in the records, so how long have you had the phone? He said, oh, about a year. But I knew, he said, that it was more than a year. And so the guy said, okay, well, since it's under a year, he says, I'll give you a brand new phone because his was so messed up. So then John said, oh, that's interesting. Let me tell you about a movie I saw not too long ago. It's called The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. How many have ever seen that movie? Okay, so in the movie, Nicolas Cage, you know, he walks into a store to get a cup of coffee. And Don Chettle, the other actor, he's probably the proprietor of the store, He's working behind the counter and a girl comes in just before Nicolas Cage to pay and she's buying something for 99 cents, okay? And so Chettle, instead of handing her back a penny, he hands her back $9 and a penny. In other words, it looks like she gave him a 10 instead of a 1. Are you following this? So now all of a sudden she's paying him with a dollar, but she's getting $9 back. How many think, boy, you know, she's getting a lot back for what she's put down, right? So he takes out these $9 bills and he sees, you know... Nicholas Cage is watching this whole thing transpire, right? And, and so she's, she pockets the money, doesn't say a word. She's about ready to walk out the door. So Chettle stops her by saying to her, hey, is there anything else you need? And she goes, no, and walks out. And then he looks over at, you know, Nicholas Cage. Well, first of all, you know, the friend here of Michael, Donald Miller, he says to John, I, I think I see what I'm, you're getting at, John. No, no, no. He says, let me finish the story. And so Chettle looks over at Nicolas Cage and he says to him, did you see that? She was willing to sell her character for $9. $9. And after a little while, you know, Donald speaks up. He says, you think that's what I'm doing with my phone, John? You think I'm selling my character? And John says, I do. The, the Bible talks about how our heart gets affected by sin. Do you know what happens? When I'm walking towards God and I'm walking into the light, I see things differently. How many know that? And if I have a tender heart, I begin to see sin far more clearly. You know, the light exposes it. And so what I find is I recognize that I sin, that I'm, that I'm more aware of sin and I'm more aware of, you know, where I'm at with God. And even though, you know, I'm more aware that I'm a sinner. I tend to sin less. 
I know I'm a sinner. I, there's no fooling. There's no escaping it. I know that I'm, I'm just a step away from messing up. But when I'm walking away from God and I'm walking in the darkness, I don't notice anything. What I'm noticing is that I think I'm doing better. I don't feel anything. And the further I go in the darkness, I sin more. But I think I'm okay. And there's a lot of Christians. That's where they're living. You know? And so then he goes on to say, you know what happened? He says, I went back to the store the next day. It cost me more than $9, but I got my character back. You follow what I'm getting at? The first step towards returning to God is saying, you know, like the psalmist, search me, God. You know, what's going on in my life? I think things are good, and God goes, yeah, but there's this. I mean, if you really are sincere and say, God, I really want to be close to you. I really want to know you. I really start, you know, having God search me. God will start pointing things out to you and going, you know, why are you so upset about that? Why is that bothering you? Why are you anxious about that? Can't you trust me? I mean, it's just amazing. All those things, you know. You know, we don't like to think of anxiety or worry as a sin, but is it a sin? Sure it is. We're told, don't be anxious. We're told to bring these things to God in prayer that bother us. We're told to, at, at, you know, when we're praying and asking God for help, we're told to give thanksgivings to Almighty God and know that He's got good things in store for us and that we can come to a place of total peace in our hearts regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. We are going to be challenged in this life. Has anybody figured that out? We are going to be challenged every single day. But we have to decide as believers how we're going to live this life. And God is calling us to Himself. God is calling us to a different kind of lifestyle. You know, we just can't hang loose and do our own thing and think that, you know, we really know God and we're in the buddy system with him. Israel thought that she would never be judged because she was God's chosen people. And I've read that Old Testament. I'm going to tell you, when the judgment came, it was quite severe. You know, God will always discipline his kids. And if you've never been disciplined by God, you have to be a little worried because God tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines his own children. How about in this room? How many say, you know, it's really hard for me to get away with things because every time I think about doing something wrong, God's right there going, what are you thinking? You're not doing that. You're not going there. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Anybody have that problem with God? He's really like right there. Anybody got... You know, I even have dreams that night if I'm even... You know, God, if he wants to deal with me, he invades every part of my life. You know? I get, I get warnings from God. Don't go there. Okay? I'm not going there. Right? That's good. That's a good thing. Amen? Amen. See, it's not that we won't be tempted. I'm teaching you tonight. Yeah, temptation will come. But what I'm saying to you is, come to God. So I'm going to have a stand tonight. We're going to close the service. I believe God's been speaking to hearts tonight. We had, an, we had amazing services this morning. People were really responsive. So I'm going to have you bow your head, close your eyes, and I want to ask you a couple of questions. You know, you hear this whole sermon, and you can, at the end of the sermon, I can ask one question. So what? What difference does this make? Real simple. God is interested in you as a person. God loves you. God is interested in your character. God is interested in a phenomenal relationship with us. God is interested in taking good care of us, believe me. But a lot of times we struggle. We are unfaithful to God. And there's things in our lives that need to be addressed. 
And you know what? It takes humility to say, God, that's me. God was speaking to hearts this this evening, and I'm going to invite you to come forward tonight. Just come right up to the front. We're going to pray. I want you to come real quickly. God spoke to you tonight and said, you know what? I want to deal with this in your life right now. You struggle with some things. Man, there was people confessing things this morning, and they were dealing with stuff. And I'll tell you something. God is able to set us free tonight. We have to hear the truth. Sometimes the truth is a little painful, but let me encourage you. When we say to God, you know what? I want the truth in my life. Don't sugarcoat it. I want reality. You know, I want to see my soul the way you see it. I want to attend to the stuff. I want, because if you, if you live a lie, you'll never be free. But the moment you say, okay, it's me, Lord. I need to change. I need something in my life. Come on up. Come on. All of you guys, come on up. You're going to pray for each other. I'm going to make you pray for one another. We're going to have a good time of prayer here. Because I'm convinced we need an encounter with God. See, I could sit down here and say, okay, I'm going to give you a blue pill, an orange pill, a red pill. It's not going to change your life. What's going to change your life? God, here am I. Here's what's happening in my soul. Lord, set me free. Give me the grace to live in victory. Deliver me from my propensity in this area. Lord, help me with self-control. Maybe I have self-control issues. You know, whatever it is, I think we have to be honest with God. You know, don't be ashamed. We're all sinners here, by the way. So everybody's standing out there still. That doesn't mean you've got your act together. You may think you do. I'm just telling you, I'm a sinner. I need God's grace in my life. I want to do business with God. And when we and I do business with God, it changes us. Isn't that true? And isn't that what we want? I want to be more like Him. You know, I don't want to make God after my image. I want to grow up and become like Him. You know, I want to be more like Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's pray. I'm going to pray for you, but I want to grab each other's hands here. We're going to pray for one another. Yeah, just come on over here. Come on, you guys. Karen, come on over here. We're going to pray with one another. It's good. Amen. It's great. You know what? If you're in the pews right now and you don't want to come forward, that's fine. Grab your neighbor's hand right now. Grab your neighbor's hand. Come on. Let's pray with each other. You know, we're going to say, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you to search my heart tonight. I need you to take these areas in my life that are causing havoc in my soul. I don't want to be thinking the wrong thoughts or doing the wrong things. I want to serve God with everything that's within me. I want to be your wonderful servant on earth. I want to make a difference in my generation. I want to impact our city of Red Deer. I don't want evil to prevail in our province and in our nation. I want to stand up to it. I want to be a part of the solution and not just more of the problem in our world. I need to be salty. I need to be full of light. I need to deal with the darkness in my own soul. Instead of condemning my culture, I need to stand up and say, Lord, it's me standing in the need of prayer. I love that old spiritual... You know, that used to go, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm humbling myself before you. I'm confessing my need for you. And so, Lord, we pray tonight. Holy Spirit, just invade this place. We're taking our lives and we're returning to you. We're taking words with us and we're saying, God, you are our God. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want you to clean house. We want you to destroy every idol. Anything that we put our trust in other than you, it's an idol. And so, Lord, we want to look to you and to you alone, Father. You'll take care of us. Lord, you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Lord, we don't want life to define us. We don't want our difficulties to define us. We don't want sin to define us. Lord, we want to be defined by you. 
We want to serve you with all of our hearts, Lord. We want to make a difference in our generation. We want to live with purpose. We want to live with understanding. We want to grow in our understanding of who you are. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you. We want to serve you with all of our hearts. We want to be in that intimate relationship with you, as close as a marriage relationship. We want to be faithful to you because you, Lord, have been faithful to us every day of our life. You've been with us, O God. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. As we cry out to you, Lord, may you come with a cleansing stream. May you set us free, O God. I just pray that you would release us, O God, that we would stop making excuses. And say, Lord, it's me. And this is what I need to see changed. I need your grace. I need your help. I need your power to change these things in my life. And maybe for some of us, we need to be more disciplined in pursuing after you and knowing your word and memorizing it and meditating on it, oh God. Lord, your word says, how can a young man, Lord's way be clean in your eyes? Lord, how can that happen, Lord? But that, Lord, we, we, we actually are in your word. We're in your word, Father. We've hidden your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the word. We would be people just oozing the word of the Lord in our hearts, O God. And when things come up, Lord, Scripture comes to our minds, O God, that we can battle the fiery darts of the enemy, the doubt, the confusion, the perplexity. Lord, all of the evil thoughts and all the fiery darts of the enemy can be quelled by the shield of faith, O God, that we have confidence in you and our trust is in you, Almighty God, and that we're looking to you with all of our hearts, O God. We just thank you for that tonight in Jesus' name. Fill us with hope today. Fill us with joy tonight that we might say it was good and pleasant to be with you tonight, Lord. To do business with you tonight in an assembly. That's why we need to meet together. That we need to assemble and to allow you to work within us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.